Word Gathering, a new online journal of disabilities-related poetry, was launched this month at www.wordgathering.com. The journal includes interviews and essays, as well as poetry. Submission information can be found at the website. This has been Helen Walsh with Pushing Limits Announcements. Thanks to Helen Walsh for the announcements. Thanks to you for listening to Pushing Limits. Our thanks to Patty Nash, Adrian Lobby, Jan Santos, Peggy Hecker for working on this show for Pushing Limits. Thanks to our guest, Meg Tuggle and Jim Devine. To contact Pushing Limits, call 510-848-6767, extension 636, or email pushinglimits at kpfa.org. This is Doyle Saylor saying, have a great weekend. Women's History Month at Laney College invites you to join us on March 23rd, 7 p.m. at the Laney College Theater for LunaFest Film Festival. Films by, for, and about women. Tickets are $12 general and $7 students. Come check out some amazing films by women filmmakers from around the globe. That's LunaFest, March 23rd, 7 p.m. at the Laney College Theater in downtown Oakland. Proceeds benefit the Breast Cancer Fund. For more info, log on to laney.peralta.edu backslash Women's History Month. Voices calling as she heard her name. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is a minute past 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for a cover-to-cover open book. From the Greek goddess Athena to television's Xena warrior princess, from Joan of Arc to G.I. Jane, history, mythology, and contemporary literature and film offer many images of women warriors. I'm Sally Plaxon. On this edition of What's the Word, Susan Crane takes us back to the Middle Ages with a look at Joan of Arc and the transcripts of her trial for heresy. This record makes Joan by far the best documented female mystic, female leader of troops, female cross-dresser of the Middle Ages. Shirley Lim talks about Maxine Hong Kingston's book, The Woman Warrior. It's a book that's had a tremendous influence, not only in Asian American literature, but in all of U.S. canonical writing, I would say. And Yvonne Tasker explores the portrayal of a female naval officer in Ridley Scott's 1997 film, G.I. Jane. She wants to be treated the same as the men she's competing with. She wants to go head-to-head, in effect. Join us on this edition of What's the Word? Women Warriors. Joan of Arc is certainly the most well-known woman warrior of the earlier centuries of Western Europe. 
Susan Crane is a professor of English and comparative literature at Columbia University. She has written about Joan of Arc in her book, The Performance of Self. She's also the best documented of those warriors because of the long testimony she gave during her trial at the end of her life, her trial for heresy, when she'd been captured by the English. She's the patron saint of France. She has the distinction of being the only saint in the Christian church who was first condemned as a heretic and turned over to be burned at the stake by the state and then declared a saint by the same church several centuries later. Joan was born around 1412 in Domremy and grew up during the Hundred Years' War, which was a long series of wars, really, in which the English kings were claiming a hereditary right to the French throne. In 1429, when Joan was about 18, she made her way to the court of Charles VI's son, who was not yet crowned, and therefore known as the Dauphin, a title given to the eldest son of the King of France. And she told him that she'd seen visions instructing her to lead an army to fight the English, and that she would regain France for the French king that is the Dauphin would become Charles VII and would rule over a reunified France. Crane speculates about the impression the young Joan, daughter of peasant farmers, must have made on the court. She must have seemed shocking to the court in several ways. First of all, she was saying she needed to command an army but she wasn't of the rank of people who controlled the army. That is, she wasn't an aristocrat. The job of peasants was to be foot soldiers in armies, not to lead troops. Also, she was a woman. There are some classical models of women fighters, such as the Amazons. There are a few women who fight in the Bible, like Judith. But in social practice, women did not fight in medieval France. In the third place, she was wearing men's clothing. In the Middle Ages, women simply did not wear men's clothes in the normal course of their lives. And the fourth way, of course, that she was very startling was that she said she had had visions from God that she should do this. Women really couldn't have authority inside the institutional church except by doing this kind of end run around the church's hierarchy by having direct access to visions from God. But to have visions is always subject to doubts and investigations in a way that, say, a masculine career path of leading a monastery and writing books and preaching is not really subject to doubts and interrogations. Despite these challenges, Joan of Arc was given an army and had some significant victories. Notably, she raised the siege of Orleans, a northern city that had been besieged by the English for some time and was in great stress. She also achieved other military victories and accomplished the coronation of the son of Charles VI, the Dauphin, as Charles VII, King of France. Joan's combat style was somewhat unusual, says Crane. It seems as if Joan's goal is to be as successful 
a military leader as she can in conventional terms of battle, that is, by winning victories. At the same time, she does fight in an unusual way, that is, in preferring her banner to her sword, in not killing people herself. In the end, Joan had a very short military career. Within a year of setting out from home, she had been captured. Her interrogation lasted three months. And when she was condemned as a heretic and turned over to the English to be burned, she was only perhaps 20 years old. Crane has studied the transcripts of Joan's trial, which are extensive, and give us access to Joan's own voice, to her own statements about her life as a warrior. The goal of the trial for heresy was to discredit Joan as the savior of France and to undermine the French claim that their cause was supported by God. One way that the judges go about doing that is to set Joan's male clothing, her insistence on wearing male clothing, against her desire to receive communion and to attend Mass. At one point, the judges agree to let her hear Mass if she will wear a dress. But then they equivocate, insisting she continue to wear women's clothing. Joan rejects that deal. She said that as to the woman's dress, she would not take it yet, not until it pleased our Lord. This insistence on waiting to take women's clothing until a future time is consonant with her insistence that she must remain virginal that she has pledged her virginity to God. She seems to associate her virginity and her dress in relation to one another as showing that she has a mission from God, that she is different from other women, that she can do things other women can't do. Crane suggests that Joan's virginity is a key element in her construction as a warrior. In that sexuality is seen with great suspicion inside the Christian faith at this point in history that virginity is a kind of purity that keeps one closer to God, that sets one beyond the earthly entanglements of sin. And that virginity, in some sense, takes her out of the status of woman, puts a little distance between the characteristic subordination of women and her status as a leader of men. In the end, Joan refuses to give up masculine dress. She doesn't consider her mission to be over. So at that point when her clothing appears not just functional but somehow symbolic, I think that's where we can see Joan moving from being a familiar kind of idealized defender of France to being something more surprising, something that indeed could cause orthodox Christians of the Middle Ages some doubts about her orthodoxy. The success of the judges in her trial was in showing at the very end of her trial that she preferred wearing men's clothing to going to confession. And that was 
one of the elements on which they charged her as a heretic, that she was wrongly committed to men's clothing rather than to confessing. Although Charles VII made no attempt to ransom Joan after her capture, he did organize a rehabilitation trial for her two decades after her death. At the end of that trial, the record of her first trial was sentenced to be torn into tiny bits, lacerated. But that was the extent of the support that Charles VII gave to Joan after her capture. And it came a very long time after her trial and death. I'm Sally Plaxon, and you're listening to What's the Word? program made possible through support from the Modern Language Association of America, an organization that encourages the study of language and literature. Mexing Hong Kingston's The Woman Warrior, her first book, came out in 1976 and won the best book for nonfiction from the National Book Critics Art Circle. It's a book that's had a tremendous influence, not only in Asian American literature, but in all of U.S. canonical writing, I would say, it's pushed the boundaries of what we consider to be autobiographical and memoir writing. It gives us a whole new legend for women of color, the legend of Fa Mulan, the woman warrior. Shirley Lim is a professor in the English department at the University of California at Santa Barbara. She is the author of several books including Among the White Moon Faces, a memoir, and the 2006 novel Sister Swing, and the editor of Approaches to Teaching the Woman Warrior. In an essay, Maxine Hong Kingston writes, We cannot find the scenes where a myth leaves off and a life and imagination begin. And that was the challenge she took for herself. The Fa Mulan Chinese woman warrior is a very ancient figure Going back to the 5th century AD, I would say, there have been various versions across the centuries in the Ming and Qing and even in the Tang dynasties. In the modern era, during China's war against Japan, Fa Mulan, the woman warrior, was staged as patriotic drama. The original figure of the woman warrior in China came from a folk poem. This is a very short folk poem which hardly outlines the major details of the story. A young girl takes on her father's duty, which is to serve in the army for the emperor against the northern barbarians. She puts on male costumes, she cross-dresses, and then becomes a famous general. And when the victories are won, she returns home and becomes a Confucianist woman submissive to her parents and to her husband all over again. So in many ways, while we American women see Fa Mulan, the woman warrior, as a feminist text, in ancient China, she was very much a Confucianist heroine, if that contradiction makes sense. In the original poem, which then, of course, gets re-narrated and becomes more colorful, the young girl follows a bird up the mountains round and round up into the sky and what she learns from the old man and woman who raise her for the next 15 years is how to be eating only nuts and fruits she learns to withstand hunger she learns to travel very long distances 
and of course she learns the martial arts. Above all, I think the myth shows how she's able to use her mind to conjure from empty air swords and weapons to defeat the enemies in front of her. Kingston's retelling adds to the original. In her retelling, there is a richness of characterization that is missing in the original poem and in all the various restagings found in China, in the Hollywood movies, for example. Let's look at a passage where she talks about what happens to the young girl as she lives up in the sky with the old man and the old woman. I learned to make my mind large as the universe is large so that there is room for paradoxes. Pearls are bone marrow. Pearls come from oysters. The dragon lives in the sky, ocean, marshes, and mountains. And the mountains are also its cranium. Its voice thunders and jingles like copper pans. It breathes fire and water. And sometimes the dragon is one, sometimes many. Kingston introduces Fa Mulan in her chapter called White Tigers. She recalls that her mother told her stories about Fa Mulan. The chapter begins, When we Chinese girls listened to the adults talking story, we learned that we failed if we grew up to be but wives or slaves. We could be heroines, swordswomen. And immediately we see how Kingston is trying to overturn the stereotype of China as a patriarchal society where women are not empowered. And the chapter continues later. Night after night, my mother would talk story until we fell asleep. I couldn't tell where the stories left off and the dreams began. Her voice, the voice of the heroines in my sleep. And on Sundays, from noon to midnight, we went to the movies at the Confucius Church. We saw sorts women jump over houses from a standstill. In a culture that placed so many restrictions on women, Kingston notes in her memoir, it is paradoxical that her mother gave her the role model of the swordswoman. Lim reads, I had forgotten this chant that was once mine given me by my mother, who may not have known its power to remind. She said, I would grow up a wife and a slave. But she taught me the song of the warrior woman, Fa Mulan. I would have to grow up a warrior woman. So what faces the young girl in her imagination are these two paths. The path the mother models for her, being a wife and a slave. And the path that the mother's stories map out for her, the song of the warrior woman. The Fa Mulan myth was probably new to many readers in the United States, who did not come from a Chinese background, says Lim. But in 1998, Disney took over the myth and brought out a movie called Mulan, which was very popular. And so at this point, I think in many ways, Maxine Hong Kingston has succeeded in her intention to make Mulan an American myth. It is significant, Kingston writes, that Fa Mulan raises an army that does not rape or pillage, but defeats its enemies. We find that the narrator ends the entire tale in this manner. The swordswoman and I are not so dissimilar. 
What we have in common are the words at our backs. The ideographs for revenge are report a crime and report to five families. The reporting is the vengeance, not the beheading, not the gutting, but the words. And of course, what we have here is a wonderful reimagining of that old saying that the pen is mightier than the sword. So that's what we have to remember when we think about the Far Mulan tale: that finally it is a tale of peace rather than a tale of combat. Lim sees parallels between the story of Far Mulan and Joan of Arc, and at one point Kingston also compares the two women warriors. In a particular passage, she notes, "Marriage and childbirth strengthen the swordswoman, who is not a maid like Joan of Arc. Do the woman's work, then do more work, which will become ours too." End quote. So she herself, in telling the tale, notes that this is not a European tale. Joan of Arc, of course, remains a virgin. And dies at the stake. Famulan marries and ends up in domestic bliss, one might say, and far away from the battlefield. I'm Sally Plaxon, and you're listening to What's the Word? Women Warriors. G.I. Jane was released in the U.S. in 1997. It generated a lot of attention, a lot of interest in media commentary. Its central character, played by Demi Moore, is a figure who raises certain anxieties about the gender identity of the military woman. Yvonne Tasker is a professor of film and television studies at the University of East Anglia in the United Kingdom. She's the author of Spectacular Bodies. Gender, genre, and the action cinema. In the late 1990s, when G.I. Jane was made, there was significant media attention on military women. G.I. Jane's U.S. release coincided with extensive coverage given to the admission policies and violent rituals associated with male-only military colleges, VMI and the Citadel, which had. Either reluctantly or through legal intervention, opened the doors to women at that point. In the wake of these events, says Tasker, both policymakers and journalists were asking questions. What does a military woman look like? Who is she? How can we sort of visualize her? These questions are taken up by G.I. Jane's director Ridley Scott, a filmmaker who's very much associated with. Quite spectacular action films, but also with strong roles for women. He directed Alien and Salmon Louise. In G.I. Jane, Demi Moore plays Jordan O'Neill, a naval intelligence officer. So what you have in the narrative of the film is a somewhat unlikely scenario in which there's a pressure for full gender integration in the military and specifically the navy. And under this pressure, the military leaders, who are all men, Agree to a test case, and they nominate the most grueling program on the assumption that no woman could possibly succeed. The program is the Navy SEALs. Access to the SEALs training program is presented as a privilege, 
as an opportunity to be part of an elite male force. So this heightens the stakes, if you like. To fill the post, a scheming senator who later betrays Jordan sifts through a series of photographs of possible women. And rejects those who look too mannish, those who might potentially bring bad publicity, and explicitly looks for someone who is media-friendly, someone who is attractive, who can give a good interview after the whole process is complete. So there's a kind of vetting process. There's a desire to find an individual, a female, who can present a feminine face to the media. This is, of course, deeply ironic since the film centers on the transformation of more from that kind of intelligence-based, kind of almost white-collar version of military service to a much more physical, muscular, down-and-dirty version of what military service is. In generic terms, says Tasker, the movie sets up its female protagonist, Jordan, as an underdog. So we know she will succeed, but she's set up to fail, more or less. And what G.I. Jane does is effectively to confront its female protagonists with two distinct sets of enemies. So you have the machinations of politicians in Washington who are military leaders, but also those involved more directly in the funding of the military, more bureaucrats, if you like. She's also facing the antagonism of her military peers, that is, the soldiers with whom she has to work, who are extremely resentful of her presence. So what you have in G.I. Jane is quite a fantastic scenario. It's a fantasy because at the time of the film's release, the end of the 90s, military women did not have a combat role. They were excluded from combat. And what the film does is to fantasize what it would be like if a woman, an exceptional woman, were to be included in a very physically demanding, very grueling training program, and ultimately, right at the very end of the film, if she were to be included in a combat situation. And for the most part of G.I. Jane, the battle that the heroine faces is actually with the military as an institution, which more or less openly does not want her. Jordan goes to some lengths to avoid special treatment. She wants to be treated the same as the men she's competing with. Jordan starts out her training in a separate barracks where she's alone, since she's the only woman on the CRT course. And she starts with very long hair, which keeps getting in her way during the exercises. At a crucial moment, she decides to insist on equal treatment. She, in fact, demands equal treatment, confronting a senior officer and then proceeding to shave her head and move into the male barracks. G.I. Jane, says Tasker, uses the conventions of the training camp film. Of the boot camp film. And that film typically follows a narrative in which a disparate group of characters are brought together and through the course of the training program learn about themselves, learn to work together, as well as developing as soldiers, as a military unit. So there's a sense of personal evolution and of professional evolution. In the end, there are moments when we see Jordan being included. Finally being accepted as a member of the male military community. They sing her praises during the combat sequences or after the combat sequences. And ultimately she is included and has a sense of belonging, as it were. So the narrative trajectory is of inclusion. The movie walks a fine line in depicting Jordan's strength, says Tasker. 
G.I. Jane is evidently aware of both the pleasures of its heroine's muscular body. There are all manner of fetishistic shots as she is doing push-ups, for instance, but equally aware of the anxieties that that kind of body might provoke. Is she strong enough to get the job done? Is she rendered potentially lesbian by her strength? Is she still sexy despite looking mannish? Get worked out in a scenario that shows, yes, she can get the job done. No, she clearly isn't a lesbian. The allegation is made and then denied. And yes, Demi Moore remains an A-list, sexually attractive female film star. So both the pleasures of spectacle and the anxieties that that spectacle provoke are simultaneously present within the film. In some ways, Tasker suggests, G.I. Jane represents the culmination of a certain kind of cinematic portrayal of the action heroine. Films featuring muscular, even mannish female protagonists in the 80s and 90s received a lot of attention. For example, the character of Ripley, played by Sigourney Weaver in Alien and Aliens, or the character played by Linda Hamilton in Terminator 2, which came out at the beginning of the 90s. So there was a perception that perhaps Hollywood action films were moving towards a more physically tough incarnation of the female heroine. In the late 90s, after the release of G.I. Jane, says Tasker, this began to change. Something very different happens, and Hollywood settles on the model which is now familiar to us, which is a version of the action heroine as sexy and tough simultaneously. And you have a successful cycle of semi-humorous and explicitly eroticized images of female violence, and that goes from films like Charlie's Angels to Kill Bill. It's clear from contemporary films that Hollywood 